0: Welcome to
1: the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Gildas and I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel here at the New Books Network. Today, I have the greatest honor of hosting Elaine Elephant to talk about her brilliant book, The Privilege of Being Banal, Art, Secularism, and Catholicism in Paris, which was published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. Um, let me introduce Elaine first. Elaine Oliphant is an Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Religious Studies at New York University. She is interested in the tenacity of white Christian privilege in the West, and has explored its reproduction through architectural forms, aesthetics, museums, and contemporary art. She has recently begun a new research project that addresses two questions, one historical and one contemporary. First, she is interested in exploring the historical role of the French Catholic Church in the shift for, from chateau slavery to racial capitalism in the French Caribbean in the mid-19th mid century. And second, she hopes to learn from present-day activism and aimed at reforming typical narratives of, of abolition and reparation in France. Well, I'm very excited about your new project as well. So without further ado, welcome to our podcast, Elaine.
2: Thank you so much, Armanj. It's a pleasure to be here today.
1: Um, Before I start with my questions, let me say how much I enjoyed reading The Privilege of Being Banal, not least because of its focus on the role of whiteness and Catholicism in France as someone who works on whiteness in Germany. So my first question is, how did this book come about?
2: Thank you so much, Armanj. I was delighted to see that we have so many overlapping interests. Um, So the book... um, Came about in, you know, a mixture of uh, very careful and very random ways. Um, I had decided to focus on on Paris um, when, in and around the uh, um, urban riots, as they were called at the time, the protest movements that were happening in the banlieues of Paris in 2005. And although religion was not um, necessarily, the focus of these um, uh, of these protests. There was a lot of discussion um, within the French press about um, uh, Muslim youth as being kind of responsible for this level of violence, um, <clears throat> and uh, and there was also the discussion of the the banning of the headscarf in schools and the um, kind of so called threats to laïcité were really taking off at this period, and I just really was struck by the absence of any discussion of Catholicism in these conversations. Um, And I thought, you know, when I think of France, I think about a lot of Catholic spaces. I, you know, Catholicism hasn't vanished. What's going on here that it doesn't, it seems as though it doesn't need to be discussed. Um, So I decided to pursue a project exploring that question. And I was wanting to kind of think about Catholicism beyond the space of the church um, in public spaces, uh, the publicity of religion as it's just defined in religious studies. Um, And, but I was, you know, kind of fumbling around in my first few weeks trying to figure out where exactly I would find what I was looking for. And um, a friend, a man who became a friend, uh, he, when I told him about my research, he said, well, why aren't you going to the Kodesh de Nadeau? And I said, What's that? And he just sort of rolled his eyes at me as if I'd <laughs> clearly not done my research well enough. And um, he was very—he um, was—it was a brilliant suggestion. It was exactly what I was looking for. Um, and uh, so that's—I sort of wandered into this really remarkable space one day and really didn't leave for another couple of years. Um, and so that's how—that's how, that's how I, I ended up at the college. Um, good luck. <laughs>
1: I mean, I also hear a lot of fieldwork studies like this, that ra- random happenings and things that yes. come together in a wonderful way.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, religious studies scholars have like, should have something to say about that in terms of, you know, this, uh, it, something out of nowhere, I was struck by a prophetic idea. There's a very kind of religious narrative that comes with all good ethnographic research.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Um, and what about the name, The Privilege of Banal? I mean, it's an interesting combination, but once you start reading the book, it becomes obvious what a to-the-point title it is. How does it capture your project for those who haven't yeah, read so the, your book yet?
2: Um, so the the title of the book was, you know, it came late, um, in part because I had been stuck on a concept that I really realized wasn't doing work for me. The title, of, um, the title had been... Um, Uh, the spaces of an unmarked faith. And, um, but I realized at a certain point that the unmarked really wasn't fully capturing what I wanted to say about the place of Catholicism in France. Um, It's not just that Catholicism goes unmarked. It's that it's also able to, leap out into the foreground in really, really powerful ways. Um, and there's no, no example more um, powerful than the burning of the Notre Dame in 2019, um, which you know, the world turned its gaze um, at this immense space and watched as it, um, it burned and Parisians gathered along the banks of the Seine in a state of sincere mourning um, and pundits on the radio and the television said, you know, this is the core of France. This is the essence of France. Um, you know, what a tragedy to lose the, you know, the center of France's soul. And, and none of this seemed to bring to mind the possibility that, um, France's secularism or France's is, is an odd one. Um, and not nearly so, and, and not one in which religion is absent. So how is it that Catholicism can often just blend into the background, um, it's part of makes up a part of the rhythm of what's available at the bakeries and restaurants during the year um, it defines the, the the calendar um, it uh, it takes up a great deal of the cityscape but not in ways that are always noticed but it can also be in ways that are monumental and powerfully present um, and even though there is a widely held agreement that Within that France's uh, strict laïcité requires that all religions be absent from the public sphere. Um, this is just in no way applies to Catholicism, which has given this incredible flexibility to move back and forth between the background and the foreground. Um, and really, any any sight of Islam um, receives so much attention and consternation. Um, you know, the when the debates around the headscarf shift um, declined, then just concerns about niqabs became quite an obsessive um, concern in the media and public discourse um, than the burkinis. Um, and at times I heard debates about, you know, the length of women's skirts, you know, were Muslim uh, uh, teenagers trying to sneak their religion into the public schools by wearing particularly long skirts. Um, you know, they, they were seeking out these signs of Islam in ways that were just... And kind of crazy, um, <laughs> um, and yet um, all of many of the streets and metro stations can be named for Catholic spaces and figures, um, and the Catholic infrastructure can just um, take over the landscape in ways that are just so powerful. Um, uh, it can populate the museums. Fine art is also that is also Christian art in in France, um, and Christian spaces. Uh, take up really significant places in the ritual life of France. Um, so I, this is the I turned ultimately to Hannah Arendt's concept of banal, um, in this meaning, um, not something that people feel nothing for or are detached from, but rather the capacity to act in ways that are held to be otherwise problematic or dangerous without really feeling the weight of that contradiction. So that was the way that I that that's the the, why I settled on banality, um, and um, <clears throat> I also wanted to identify that banality. Um, when I first started, you know, using the words, some colleagues said, "Wow, aren't the people you studied going to be really offended that you're calling them banal?" And um, and I wanted to, and I realized that I needed to really emphasize that it's um, banality is a if you can occupy that space, it's a great privilege. It's it means that you can. Um, move in the world in ways that are deeply contradictory without feeling any uh, repercussions for that. Um, and so, um, and later on in the book, I, and I conclude by thinking about the banality of privilege itself. So I, I kind of turn the phrase around. Um, but the core of the book is really thinking about, um, just this, this privileged, um, power to stand as nothing more and nothing less than France itself. Um, within, uh, a form of laicite that is often very strict and prohibiting the presence of other religious forms.
1: I mean, in a way, what you're talking about sounds a lot like, to me, like passing, right? Like um, that kind of privilege. And I mean, the question of unmarked and whiteness being unmarked is always like spoken in those terms, which actually ethnographically makes it very hard to actually study whiteness itself because those tools aren't there if you, if you keep reproducing the trope of whiteness being unmarked in the exactly. first place.
2: Exactly. Yeah. No white privilege is cer- certainly the concept that I was using to in order to address how wh- how this is a privilege. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of pushback generally to think about um, to use American concepts um to talk about it that are having developed to talk about American white supremacy, to take those and apply them to France, um, is generally something I receive a lot of pushback, um, about, but I think that it's, um, a very productive concept this way that, um, power is not just, you know, a violent or, um, or it's, it's violence is not always explicit, but is often just in these everyday modes of, kind of microaggressions whereby, um, one's life way is taken to be so naturalized and so significant, um, and therefore can't be questioned, while other life ways are dismissed and seen as deeply problematic and threatening to this core. Um, and that's what white privilege really gets us to, and what I think is also happening in, in France in and around um, different religious forms and in and around racial forms as well.
1: Hmm. And this also kind of I mean is a good way goodly way to talk about the difference between maybe secularism and laicité. I mean, I'm kind of familiar with the discussion from the context of Turkey, but I'm very curious how it plays out in France and to add to that, maybe you can talk a bit about kata laicité.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, laïcite um, and and secularism in the kind of Anglo American style the Easiest distinction I've heard um, is that in the Anglo-American tradition of secularism, the emphasis on is on the freedom um, of religion that one should feel free to practice one's religion in um, public spaces. So, kind of dating back to the Protestant Reformation, when many different um, Protestant groups were you know, deemed heretical or problematic, or you know there were limits put on their practice. Um, so different ideas of toleration now emphasize the right to religion, the freedom of religious practice. And uh, the French tradition of laïcité emphasizes more the freedom from religion. And, you know, reason kind of thinking about the overwhelming power of the French Catholic Church or of the Catholic Church in a number of European countries um, in the early modern period, uh, medieval period, the sense that, religious power needs to be contained and limited and constrained, um, so that people can circulate in public life without needing to engage in religious practice, um, or be unduly influenced by religious ideas. Um, but those are the kind of ideals of laicite la and secularism. And of course, the ways they work out in practice are far more complex and fragmented. And there's certainly lots of frustration and consternation expressed around the presence of religion in, um, Anglo-American secularism, um, the appropriate place of religion you know, debates around where the 10 commandments belong belong and, um, whether accommodations should be made for a variety of religious practices. And similarly in, in France, there is, uh, also, um, uh, d- debates and discussions about, um, how, the right to practice religion and how it should take up pu- public space. So, um, but it does speak, I think that distinction does speak to something of the, um, discursive, the, the discursive frameworks under which they operate. Um, and, um, so when I was in my first chapter, I, I to address this, the place of, um, the Collège des Vachnades, which is a 13th century monastery, um, that, was purchased that had been expropriated during the French Revolution and then purchased back by the um, French Catholic Church and turned into a space for contemporary art display and intellectual debate. Um, so it was trying to make this case that um, the distinction between Catholicism and elite secular French culture and heritage need um, not be so um, drawn so carefully. In fact, that the two Merged together in really important and powerful ways, and Catholicism stood at the foundation of French elite uh, cultural and intellectual life. Um, and so, in trying to understand how the, the kind of stakes involved in that kind of acclaim, I looked at two different ways that we might see the kind of religion being produced in this space. Um, and for the many of the people who initiated the project and were involved in its early years, they were um, attempting to build on this concept of what's called catolaicite. So a bit of a pun that doesn't work as well in English, but Catholic secularism, that France uh, France uh, has a a secularism with a Catholic flair to it, that there's, um, uh, and that's certainly true in many respects. Um, But what I also found um, when I went to do this work at the college is that there were many um, voices within the college who were worried that what was going on in this space was the production of a secularized Catholicism, a Catholicism that had been um, tamed by secular um, strictures and um, that was operating in ways that reduce its distinctiveness, its moral authority, and its its powerful voice to push back against the secular public sphere. And there was an, an ongoing debate um, within this space about what was being produced and um, uh, uh, and the voices that were really pushing for a you catolaicité. Know, I recognized that in many ways, when um, both those who were pushing catholicite and those worried about a secular, secularized Catholicism, both were deeply invested in maintaining Catholicism's banal privilege, um, its right to occupy the public sphere in ways that were unquestioned. And the people who were pushing Cite and creating the Collège in this very sophisticated way were really recognizing, you know, what would be the most effective way to reproduce that privilege not by making Catholicism stand out as yet another religion, but by insisting, that by re, by emphasizing its banality precisely, by emphasizing the way in which it could move back and forth, its moral voice could push out and then recede according to the um, needs of the time, and but ne- that would never become problematic or never become questioned. Um, and the secularized Catholicism voices were worried about secularized Catholicism. You know, or saw this as a dangerous game, one that could force the Catholic voice to um, to shape itself too much according to secular standards. And um, and that part of what's significant about Catholicism is that it it ought to stand out um, and ought to be distinctive. Um, it shouldn't be just the same as going to any other museum or any other cultural event in Paris. Um, so that's the, the debate I, I explore in the first chapter.
1: Um, and what's the what's the role of European Islam within these discussions?
2: So um, uh, European Islam, it's it, it's sort of the specter that that haunts much of the college and uh, the practices that occur there. It's um, it's the religion that those pushing for the reproduction of catholicity um it, it's the negative example they want to avoid. Um, they want to avoid being this religion that stands out. Um and uh it's I, one of the of the many contradictions that um uh and that power and motor um Catholicism's religionality, you know, from the way that its materiality can stand out, well is Muslim materiality must be hidden. Um one of the more significant, um, that I found was the way that, um, Muslim, uh, pra- actors in, in France are often described as medieval in a very, um, negative sense, pejorative sense. Um, they're seen as kind of incapable of, of modern, um, uh, of, of being modern and capable of, and, um, having the right views about, um, gender and sexuality and, um, and and not knowing, and not understanding the nature of French political life, um, and so they, um, uh, many the, the wearing of the niqab, for example, is taken to be a medieval practice, um, one that prevents the subject that's kind of hidden within from developing the necessary agency that it comes with a, a modern self. Um, and what I found so kind of remarkable about that language, in addition to its kind of racist um, and um, deeply problematic expressions, was that um, these, uh, I was, you know, it, engaging with a space that was a medieval Catholic space in which the medieval was being celebrated as the core of French modernity and French culture um, and French heritage. And so many visitors were coming to like just wanting to step their toes where the the medieval um, Cistercian monks had once stood and just stand near an old what had been a, a water fountain, and imagine it filled with um, silent monks um, in prayer and doing. Uh, they they really wanted to move in a way that they could access this medievalness, this medieval history, in ways that were tangible. Um, and again, that <laughs> that contradiction, you know, carried no weight. Um, uh, and um, many people came having seen images on television and were convinced that there must be a cloister of some kind. And it, there wasn't. There was a one long open room on the ground floor and a smaller sacristy. Um, and if you open the back door, it would just lead onto a beautiful... Um, 20th century swimming pool, <laughs> indoor swimming pool. Um, but so many people insisted that I open the back door and show them because they insisted that they'd seen it. There was a cloister. They'd seen it on TV. And I'd open the door and show you know, so them this beautiful 20th century pool. And the, you know they would just be devastated. They said, I was sure. I was sure it was there. And I was just really struck by that error that so many people made. They would see a few of the images and, and quickly a whole medieval – landscape um monastic landscape developed in their minds and they couldn't be convinced uh, otherwise so the the positive valences of the medieval that uh, accompanied the catholic medieval um, compared to this deeply threatening supposed medieval islam um, is a really significant contradiction um so uh you know islam there is in the when the first chapter when I talk about, uh, chapter three, when I talk about um, the first a- exhibit of contemporary art that I saw at the college um, in which an, an artist had um, smashed um, tall panels of glass and burned a library of books and placed silenced bells on the, the, the floor of the building. Um, people who came to see the college and were confronted by this very powerful and shocking exhibit often would suggest that this had been the work of Muslim vandals, just like in the 2005 riots, Um, that this wasn't an artist, but a a Muslim vandal um, who'd who'd come to destroy the good neighborhoods, as they would put it. Mm -hmm.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
1: I mean, it's really interesting that, I mean, um, definitely like the specter of Islam haunting everything and every one is is present in Germany as well, but after Islam, the other kind of not the other kind of belief that stands out is definitely considered Catholicism here, at least among secular circles. So it's interesting. I I mean, I was really thinking about this when I was reading the book as well, because I mean, apparently banality is also quite um, contextual in that sense.
2: I I do think so. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't you know very very committed, deeply secular communist voices in France that you know see the Catholic Church as always and forever a threat. Um, there are, but that's a pretty significant. It's a it's a minority of voices that would go that far. There is a a general majority for whom Catholicism is um, you know neither. A part of their daily lives, nor a significant threat to those daily lives. Um, but the, they, even if they don't see the Catholicism that is a part of their daily lives, it certainly does still um, shape so many of the cultural practices and a daily rhythms in which they engage. So there is a, um, certainly a large, even still today, sixty-five percent of French people st- describe themselves as Catholic, while only four and a half percent go to mass regularly. So there's a huge swath of the population that, um, um, you know, engage with Catholicism in this partial tacit way. Um, And I, so I do think that the concept of banality is one that can be mobile it'll just look really different. Um, It's one of the ways to help us think about the majority religion in any given place and how it gets to allied many of the strictures of secularism um, in ways that are not given to other religious forms. So Protestantism in the United States would more likely be, be to occupy a space of privileged banality um, and perhaps in, in Berlin um, and parts of Northern Germany as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, And I mean, going back to that exhibition you were talking about, one of the things I found really inspiring about your book is the kind of multiplicity of sources you use. I mean, on one hand, your ethnographic observations in Paris, but more specifically working as a mediator in college with interviews, architectural readings, contemporary art exhibitions and their catalogs, art historical documents and books and official speeches, to name a few. So I want to ask, how it how was it to bring all of these together? And can you maybe tell us a bit about your ethnographic research?
2: Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, the research... Um, came to take shape slowly. Um, um, I was at first at just attending events uh, at the college and going on, on tours of it. Um, and then I began to befriend some of the mediators of the first contemporary art exhibit who were my age um, and uh, easy to talk to. Um, they were students uh, like, like myself. And the art exhibitions were clearly um, a site of great deal of anxiety and tension and a lot of profound emotions um so i was drawn and pulled to to sort of hang around them as much as i could and i because i was the same age um as many of the mediators, employees at the college kept mistaking me for a mediator. And then when the second exhibition began and the 2008 financial crisis had really settled, had moved from the United States into Europe in profound ways, and um, the large budget with which the college had begun shrank significantly. And so while the first mediators had been employees um, with benefits uh, and a decent salary, Um, they now needed to turn to um, interns, uh, a different classification of employment where you don't make a living wage and you don't get additional benefits. So they had to fire all the first mediators and and hire new ones. And um, and at at some point in that process, I got brought in as well. And um, it was a fantastic bit of luck to be able to be formally employed. Um, I you know explained to them that I was continuing to conduct research. They were fine with that. Um, but it just gave me this, a really different rhythm of ethnographic um, research in which um, I was really staying in one place, uh, day after day, long enough to really identify patterns, which I came to understand are really key for ethnographic research. It's not just that we're talking to people and getting sort of firsthand accounts. And I think interviews are one of the actually um, not always the most significant parts of ethnographic research. Um, you also need to just overhear things and have a passing conversation and um, and just sit back and observe um, or to feel what it's like to be in the presence of particular different um, kinds of objects um, over time. And it's, it's actually the duration that, I think, makes ethnographic work so significant. Um, duration of being with people in a place over time allowed me to say when things that happened were unusual and what was typical. Um, and so that was the, the way I really approached the, the research in that space. And, and this is in part because I wasn't really able to kind of follow the people that came in and out of it. They came to me and I had these rel- relatively in brief interactions with them with the employees, I had more long-term relationships, but I wasn't really going to their homes or meeting their families or you know f- tracing out their their full humanity um, in any uh, real way. The artists, I only met a few of them, and I had you know short-term encounters with them. Um, and uh, um, the mediators were were friends. We would occasionally hang out outside of outside of the college, but um, I, I felt in many ways, that um, in part because I was doing research among very privileged people, among very wealthy people, Um, the visitors to the college were extraordinarily wealthy for the most part, and they really, Um, did not see any benefit to our having any kind of a relationship. There was nothing they could really gain from having an ethnographer follow them around. So even though I wanted to get a better sense of how this very privileged, wealthy, Catholic, um, white elite uh, lived and circulated, I just wasn't going to get that kind of access. And um, so I struggled with that for a long time, even after returning. And what I came to understand was that... um, Uh, you know, in reading the works of Bell Hooks and others, that there is um, a really powerful um, gap in empathy that has been built into um, scholarly work, where there's such an excess of understanding of white Christian life ways, so much material, archival, uh, architectural, art historical, um, to just really... Um, so that, you know, the visitors who could come to the collège could really fully imagine what it might be to be a monastic, you know, a medieval monk in this space. Um, and there are so many ways, as I said earlier, that these life ways are just so celebrated and taken for granted as natural and not in any way threatened. And so by not by actually not fully engaging with this population in their full humanity, um, I think that was maybe an important part of studying privilege, um, where you don't go out to sort of say, let's you know fully understand and celebrate this way of life. Instead, let's look at it in a partial way and see how it's producing these, you know, the tenaciousness of these narratives of privilege. How is it re- reproducing white supremacy? How is it reproducing this inequality and this power, rather than appreciating it in its, in its fullness? Um, and and I really began to see the you know, art history, historical work that I'd been reading um, to help me understand my work as a mediator as for more data about how white privilege operates and um, the history of museums, the um, uh, exhibit catalogs, the all of these things that go into um, amplifying the significance of white Christian elite culture um, these were um, all data points, um, all, for, all different kinds of uh, data that I had gathered over time that I needed to analyze um, and um, kind of treat in similar fashion. And so uh, I wish I could say that I had gone in with this plan <laughs> to kind of approach the ethnographic research of privileged groups in a way that would not emphasize their humanity. Um, it was not <laughs> my plan, but it was something that I reflected on, uh, and the ethical implications of, uh, my research, I reflected on a lot. Um, and, you know, I think at first it was the awkwardness of having conversations with people that I didn't agree with, you know, listening to them say racist remarks and not knowing whether I should push back or say, ask for more so that I could analyze it, um, better. But it, it's not only the ethics of the interaction itself that I think ethnographers and anthropologists need to address, but the ethics of of what kind of picture of are you offering up in your analysis? Whose lives are you amplifying? And whose lives are you overlooking? These are, I think, really important questions we need to ask ourselves when we're studying privilege. Um, because too often we can just use ethnography as a means of accidentally further amplifying life ways that are already given um, so much space um, to the detriment of others.
1: So my favorite passage in the book was where you talked about your positionality, and not only that, but wrote, and I'm quoting, the inequalities that structure the majority of ethnographic research tend to produce a situation in which the ethnographer has more wealth and power than those he or she is studying. This inequality can at times serve to facilitate ethnographers' entry into the lived experiences of those they research. In such relations of inequality, ethnographers are often able to access private spaces, more often than not, uh, sorry, private spaces such as homes. and if I may add, uh, the visibility of this access to private spaces more often than not is considered the criteria for good or thick ethnography. So how do you see this inequality affecting or being affected by the current discussions on decolonizing anthropology?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's key. Um, there's, um, you know, when I first, when I was um, first telling some mentors of mine uh, that I was going to do this research in Paris, they kind of laughed at me and said, Oh, you know, that's the research you do when you're, um, you've got tenure and you're settled and you've got kids. And it's not that, you know, you have to go out and do that rough research in the, you know, the, in the wilds or, um, you know, the, the sort of general, um, uh, terminology that's used to, to describe, um, what are, in fact, very often racialized distinctions and um, certainly ser- serious distinctions in class um, and certain dis- serious distinctions in privilege and wealth. Um, so um, I really was in- invested in doing ethnographies of privilege, but I wasn't thinking enough about the ethics of that. And as I've said in, in our last question, the, mm-hmm. the ethics of amplifying life ways that are already um, celebrated to the um, ex- uh, at the expense of other life ways. And I needed to do more to think about that. And I'm, I'm glad that I had a chance to do so, so before completing the book, but I think I needed to go further. Um, in terms of research among, when in the typical um, anthropological way in which the ethnographer is the one with the power and the wealth and is often white in working with um, different populations of color um, I think it is that inequality that we really need to address, and that so much of really gr- wonderful engaged anthropology or applied anthropology is trying to do. Where um, instead of just showing up in spaces where uh, one is given a, um, a pass because of one's wealth and whiteness and connections to powerful American institutions, one should be going, should be moving uh, in ways that uh, developing relationships where um, the research is being done collaboratively and in ways that really benefit um, the populations with whom one is engaging. Um, and I, I don't know what that looks like. I've not made that attempt. Um, and I know it's really, really arduous and difficult work. Um, but I think it is um, a, a key, comp- a key, a key thing about a, a key thing that anthropologists have to do to successfully decolonize the discipline. And I think questions need to be asked about um, uh, about research on privileged particip- populations as well. I took for granted that the ethnographic method was valuable in and of itself. And if I could understand any life way better by engaging in ethnographic research, then that was all I needed to do. Um, but in recent years, I've really um, been forced to confront that that's a problematic approach. And we always need to be asking about the life ways were amplifying and the inequalities were taking for granted and, and, and um, benefiting from and thereby reproducing
1: yeah thank you so much for that um and going back to the college and the book um i was especially intrigued by the way you brought discussions on religion to bear on the experience of contemporary art especially employing the concept of immediacy Could you tell a bit about that?
2: Sure. So within studies of Christianity, um, there's this phrase developed by Matthew Engelke, um, the problem of presence. Um, And how is it that different Christian actors um, uh, access uh, God's presence, um, feel that presence? um, And there's, Lots of debates among Catholics and, and Protestants about the correct ways to do that, um, and that's uh, that's uh, it takes place in a space where there's fears about idolatry, about putting too much power into material objects, um, uh, and fears also of um, you know imagining that one is hearing God, um, uh, which is you know nicely seemingly immaterial and yet. How can one know um, whether or not the the way the the spirits that are being made present are are good or bad, are um, godly or demonic? Um, So this problem of presence of accessing um, God um, and who's um, since the death of Jesus for Christians, whose presence is intangible and invisible. Um, uh, so, how is that made tangible and visible? And there are a host of ways through relics, icons, um, sacraments, <clears throat> speaking in tongues, um reading the Christian Bible. So a great deal of fantastic anthropological research has laid out just how complex these modes of mediation of making God present are. And what I wanted to do was to um, argue that there, are are similar fears and anxieties that accompany um, the viewing of art, um, and uh, in within the West, within Europe, um, there's similarly um, a, the specter of, of the fetish, of putting undue um, power <clears throat> um, and being kind of uh, drawn in and captivated by uh, material objects in ways that are um, problematic, um, or the You know, become celebrating the art, the skills of an artist who's who doesn't deserve that celebration, being taken in by a fraud or someone who's not um, an artist who's not doing art for the right reasons. Um, And so I, I tried to talk about the way that, um, in particular, with one uh, installation piece called Cellula, the artists um, had tried to address. The relationship that people had with the space of the college itself. So it's not only, um, you know, paintings on the wall, but architectural spaces that people engage with in ways that are very powerful and complex and develop these, these you know, significant relationships with. Um, and um, so one thing that the artists wanted to do with their installation was call into question the ways that people took for granted that this was obviously a medieval space that they could, you know, access the, this, you know, something else that is inaccessible. They could access the medieval past. They could bridge this gap um, between the present and the past by simply moving in this space. And, um, uh, and I saw that, that desire for immediacy, that desire for kind of, tangible um, proximity to the past as being um, relatable to that desire for tangible proximity to God. Um, But I wondered at um, one of the things that we discuss in the anthropology of Christianity is, is whether immediacy is possible um, or whether we always have um, to struggle with a gap. And if it's in fact productive to struggle with that gap and accept something less than perfect me- immediacy, um, and because then we can really recognize what 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 is going on in terms of mediation. And um, so, what the artists did was they built up scaffolding in the sca- in the sacristy to build additional an additional floor into this quite tall space, and in so doing, they they reproduced what. Um, how the stru- space had been structured when it had been a fire station, while well owned by the city of Paris for about a century, um, and they took down the, the large lights that had been hanging, um, and they put them on uh, on this the stairs leading up to this this third floor, this the second floor, and the, the floor was right next to the the windows, which are normally a kind of above sight line. Um, when one's sitting on the floor of the sacristy and they did all of these things to kind of call attention to the madeness of the space and the fact that it was a recently renovated space that architects had made choices not all of them perhaps um the best choices they could have made um and really refuse people um you know you had to walk up these rickety metal steps to the top of a, a platform on scaffolding where um, <clears throat> plywood floors, you know, laid out before you, so really denying them this access to um, I- any kind of immediacy, forcing them to see the space as mediated, um, and it used a great deal of outrage and frustration. And on the top of the the platform on these on the plywood, they had laid out a a, a sculpture in neon lights that they called a, a cellule. Um, a cell and they were pointing to the multiple meanings of the word cell that it had served, you know, there are monks cells, but there are also prison cells. And briefly the college had served as a prison during the French revolution, um, as well as being, you know, the basic, uh, fundamental element of biological life. So they, um, you know, the, the exhibit itself was made up of plywood, neon lights and, um, not much else. And so when um, people coming to look, were told that they were going to go to an art exhibition, they were expecting objects whose value could also be seen immediately, right? That there's a, that a painting hanging on a wall um, that is a an object of value. Um, and um, so when we would... You know, when they would encounter this space that was denying them the immediacy they wanted in relation to the collage, um, they would often move around this platform in ways that were dangerous and, and um, they broke many of the neon lights. And we would admonish them and say, you know, please be respectful. This is an art exhibit. And they would laugh and say, you know what there's nothing that of value that has been broken here. And they were kind of implying that it was the artists who were, who were fetishizing things. The artists who were suggesting that something like plywood and neon lights could have some kind of implicit or ingrained immediate value, Um, which of course is not what they were saying, but it's true that um, one of the neon sculptures, um, they did separate that out from the, after the exhibit and sell it for, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Tens of thousands of dollars. A few years later, so I just, you know, was struck by these competing fetishes and these constant concerns um, about who was engaging engaging in fetishism, who was putting improper value in um, objects that, or in, and practices that didn't merit it, and all of these desires for immediacy. Whether people were coming to look for art that they could instantly connect to and recognize as art or um, come to a medieval space and access the past in ways that were immediate. Um, So I saw lots of overlap in those desires and those fears. Um, And, and yeah, so that's how I tried to get us to think about our relationship with art. Um, I think it's um, uh, not Always self-evident. How to engage, especially with contemporary art, and um, I think we should do more to celebrate that awkwardness and um, uh, um, and expect that our relationships with material objects will change over time, and that we will become invested in, in ways that are um, complicated. But to kind of move beyond, you know, fetish, commodity, or trash you know (laughs) these seem to be our sort of a sacred object commodity fetish um and our refuse um and i i but i really push back against um new materialist paradigms that insist that the objects themselves have agency um i really want us to foreground the human object relationships and the human human relationships that happen in and among objects um so that we can really understand um the desires and anxieties that surround them and so that we can start to really build more um a richer vocabulary um and richer understanding of the ways we connect to um and are disgusted by the materiality we're surrounded by mm-hmm.
1: and i mean like reading the book i was also quite surprised by the visceral reactions the audience members would give to artworks and even break them to me these are unimaginable things uh it must have been very very yeah yeah, i mean and i mean you 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 had the perfect position to look into that because usually in art studies it's very difficult to do to work with audiences and you yeah your yeah your work as a mediator enabled you and yeah that looked really i mean the end result is really amazing to read
2: thank you yeah i was really lucky to be able to access um viewer um experiences that is something that's really sorely lacking in the anthropology of art and um in our history certainly um uh and but yes it was you know it sounds like pretty uh easy um ethnographic research hanging out in a medieval space watching you know hang it with contemporary exhibitions in a medieval space, but it was very exhausting and often deeply unsettling work because the um, visitors were often so outraged by what they saw. And we were associated with the works um, by by virtue of our our labor, and um, people would just scream at us, um, really express so much anger um and often bringing people to tears um after day you know day after day being yelled at again and again and again it was actually really exhausting and um, unsettling um there were days when I really didn't want to go to work again <laughs> um but um yeah it's it clarified for me that these um I think if I was initially, trying to approach Catholic materiality with some suspicion and some distance and, you know, refuse its privileged banality. Um, I really had to acknowledge that we develop relationships with material forms that we can't just say we need to get over and are problematic and, you know, we can destroy them. They are really complicated. And um, uh, so I, and I, I myself became really attached to many of the contemporary art exhibits because I was having to defend them every day. (laughs) And at first I wouldn't always understand them or know how to talk about them. And it was often took me several weeks and to find the vocabulary I needed to convey what was going on with the works. But over the course of months, I would certainly um, become quite affectionate towards these spaces. And I often think about the installations and then I miss them Um, (laughs) for, you know, whatever that Mm -hmm. says. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I yeah, I worked as a exhibition assistant in many exhibition contemporary art exhibitions in Turkey, so I, I definitely can relate to that. Um, okay, I mean, thank you so much for joining us, Elaine. Uh, this was a very, very, uh, this was a pleasure. And thank I you, look our forward to our, our paths crossing again.
2: Me too. Best of luck.
1: Thank you. This was the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Armand Gildiz. Until next time.